You're listening to the Artistic Finance Podcast, Show 57. Today's guest is theater director Ryan Gazzo Purcell. We discuss the Williams Project, a small nonprofit theater company that aims and succeeds at paying a livable wage to its staff while providing a pay-what-you-can model for its audience. The company is six years old and is hoping to break into regional theater status, and when it does so, pay the highest wages of any theater in the country. And while you listen to today's interview, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. You're listening to Artistic Finance Podcast, where your host, Ethan Steimel, interviews successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire artists to grow their wealth. Welcome, Ryan Guzzo Purcell, to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We are recording this on April 13th, 2021, amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, a Black Lives Matter slow burn across the world, and a stop Asian hate outcry by the public because of attacks on Asian Americans. Ryan, so today we're going to talk about the Williams Project, but can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, I'm Ryan Guzzo Purcell. I'm a theater director. I'm based in Seattle, Washington, which is also where I grew up. I founded and run the Williams Project, which is a, a nonprofit theater company that's dedicated to making artistic excellence accessible while paying artists a living wage. My bio, I, I grew up here in Seattle, like a lot of people fell in love with the theater in high school, pursued it into college at Boston University. There I was still acting some, but first fell in love with directing and moved entirely to directing once I finished. Did the itinerant director thing, New York, a bunch, uh, the Bay Area were my two homes before coming back to Seattle. Uh, went to grad school, went to Brown in Providence uh, to get my MFA in directing. So yeah, I've, I've basically been a combination of a freelance director. I was the associate artistic director at Magic Theater in San Francisco for a couple of years. And now I'm an artistic director and still to some extent a freelance director as well. Fantastic. Could you describe your demographics for us? I'm a, I'm a cis white man. I'm 38 years old for a couple more months. All right, your creative personality. What is a live event that you like to experience as an audience member? I am a big fan of virtuosity more than cohesion. So things where performers are just at the edge of what anyone can do. I love break dancing. I love free jazz. In the theater, that usually means I like big, epic, messy plays that, that you know, if someone's just okay at it, I like the plays that if, if someone's okay, it's bad. They have to be, it's either going to be great or terrible. Those are the plays I really love. So um, the Williams Project does a lot of sort of those mid-century American plays that are realism, but actually huge poetic epics. And, and that's kind of where I, where I live. Whenever, whenever performers are really on the edge, that's my kind of show. That's amazing. Uh, what is a piece of art that you like? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say one of my favorite works of art is D'Angelo's second album, Voodoo. That's probably been the most consistent artwork that's like stayed with me in my life. Brilliant musicianship, pushing the edges, uh, very emotional. Uh, and within the theater, there's kind of two. The, the James Baldwin play Blues for Mr. Charlie. James Baldwin is my favorite thinker, writer, American creator of thought that, that ever existed. And Blues for Mr. Charlie is one of those plays, like it's, it's one of the few plays I can read over and over again. There's plays I can see a lot, but that one I can just read over and over again. So those, those will be where I'll, those are my, my works of art. Uh, that's really interesting because I actually noticed that the Williams Project did Blues for Mr. Charlie. And I have a question later on for you about it because it's not, it's not done very often. Okay, so... Onto your financial personality, are you bad or good with money? I'm mediocre with money. So my, <laughs> <laughs> I try to make really conservative decisions in the big picture so I don't have to think about it as much day to day. So I was lucky enough to not go into big debt to get my education, um, which meant that, you know, I probably spend too much 
at restaurants because I keep my my big costs down. So um, so I'm doing okay with it, but I'm I'm not a person who's good at being really thoughtful. Like I've never had a budget um, other than just sort of looking at my bank account and going, okay, it's it's staying where it needs to <laughs> once a month. Fantastic. All right, so now on to the Williams Project. What is it and why did you start it? What it is, is a loosely defined, it's a collective of actors, a designer and myself, who hopefully sort of share an artistic vision about the kind of work we want to create. It didn't start quite as specifically finance-driven as it has become. It started when I wanted to do this production of Orpheus Descending with a group of actors that I'd met through my time uh, in San Francisco working at The Magic and in, in grad school at Brown. Didn't have much money, but these were all some pretty seasoned actors. And so I knew that they wouldn't just do it for fun. So I, I did a Kickstarter and raised enough money to just get them together for two weeks to see what happened. In those two weeks, working really intensively with really committed folks, it was probably one of the best shows I've ever done. And, and that experience really shifted my mindset around how to get great work created in the theater. And this idea that if people are able to focus entirely on the work, you can do so much more in less time. So ever since we were founded, we had this impulse that a living wage was important for artists. The, the realization that when actors were working completely committed that they could work so much faster and more deeply was part of it. And then the other part of it was, you know, I was in San Francisco working at a mid-sized theater that by the sort of system of theater was, I'd say above average in the way it treated workers, but still really like in the, in the system. And I started noticing, you know, when I was a young artist, I had this feeling that like, yes, I'm struggling now, but once I make it, once I'm working consistently, once I'm at bigger places, I'll hit this sort of comfortable level that I talked about. And I started to see in the Bay Area, it wasn't just like struggling actors who were, who were leaving the field. It was the actors that I would see everywhere and they were working consistently. And then they just hit an age where they said, I can't do this anymore. And it wasn't because they weren't getting jobs. It was because they were. And that sort of made me think something's wrong here. We're, we're sort of taught this starving artist thing as if it goes away, but structurally it really doesn't. And, and so that helped me define and get more intentional about the idea that what if even from a small professional company standpoint, you already started with the impulse that, that valuing arts was the baseline. You know, we're now up to our budget this year is supposed to be probably somewhere around budgeting in a pandemic is a hilarious process, but somewhere around $300,000 a year. So we're not a, a big company by any means, but we pay comparable to much larger companies. Yes, it's hard. You have to, there are trade-offs, but once that's the first thing you're committed to, there's a way to make it work and a way to make it sustainable. When you said the actors could focus or the artists could focus more if they're getting paid, do you mean as in like you can have rehearsal that's more than four hours because everyone has a day job and you're saying, oh, well, now we can do an eight, 10 hour day without having to worry about that? I mean, both literally, you know, like the, the energetic thing that comes from working carpentry all day and then doing a, a play in the evening or teaching and so yeah, quite literally just the fact of, I have more time to dedicate to this. And there's a sort of emotional energetic portion, which is I'm being valued here. This is my priority. This is my real job. I trust the people in the room differently. And that was the part that was sort of surprising because these were the same people I'd worked with in other environments. So it wasn't like our relationship changed. It was just the relationship to working together did change. So it's both, it's both literal and metaphorical, the, the ability to, to put more priority on it. So you're paying like weekly? Is that sort of how the situation is? Exactly, exactly. So we, according to the Actors Union, we're a small professional theater, most of our contracts, I mean, we still do contract by contract, but we're a small professional theater in the, in the ninth tier last year, which means we pay 
Last year we did two plays overlapping, which meant it went up even more. I think it was eight fifty a week last year, and our baseline is something like seven twenty-five, seven fifty a week. And then the other thing we do, we use union actors, and even when we when our companies aren't fully union, we pay the same amount. So we take away any incentive to not use union actors for a financial reason. We only do it if it's the right actor, but we we don't want to sort of think of it as how can we save money on certain actors? That's kind of part of that, making sure people really feel valued for the work they're doing, because we're never trying to save money on on an actor. And this is just a very little nitty gritty detailed question here, because I'm in the design union. And so if somebody pays me, say, $1,000 a week, they're paying $1,000 and then they're paying 20% toward pension and welfare. So with actors union, I assume that's the same thing where you pay that 850 base and then you have to pay 20% on top of it. So those non-union actors, let's say they get the base of 850, but you then don't have to pay their extra or do you help them with that at all? No, that is true. We do save money on, um, I know in, in actors equity, you pay into health and pension and some portion of their dues. I don't, I don't remember the exact formulas, but yeah, there is some supplemental fees that go with using union people versus non-union people. And then there's, of course, labor and industries and taxes that you pay on all of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I, you said you had one designer. Is that designer in the union or do they get the same pay as the actors? Or that, You know what's interesting? We, we have one sort of regular designer that's a member of the company and then we hire others as well. I think she is in USA. I mean, it's not the same as actors because it's not weekly, but we, we do generally have her out for the whole process. What I would say is it's sort of comparable to the way that even though we're small, we pay like a larger theater, her design fee, you'll probably know more than more than me, actually. I think for the last show, it was 3500 so not huge, but sort of comparable to a mid-sized professional. Yeah, there's the union sets rules as like how big your theater is or how big your production. And it sounds like you fit into some sort of regional theater contract where it's that's the fee that a designer would get. And Well, but this one, I know that with, with that fee, at least when we started working with Ann Lynn, I don't think she was. She was just out of grad school and we just sort of were looking at what's comparable to an actor making this amount? Because, you know, at, at that point, we, we don't have our own space. So we've done shows in churches, in basements, the kind of Seattle version of storefront theater. We have not been governed by USA or IATSE restrictions on those things, mostly because we haven't done that much inside of theater spaces. Yeah, very often with designers, it's a flat fee because they're going to start before the actors more than likely but they have to do all this prep work. And so it's like, you look at their fee and it's like, oh, wow, they're getting 3,500. But then it's like, well, they actually have worked on the show for 12 weeks here and there and doing all that. So this was another thing I saw when I was in, in the Bay Area is like designers. I mean, especially in a town, like in an expensive town, but it's like they would be going to tech in San Jose in the morning and Marin County in the evening and have their assistant. And it was like, I remember talking to a, a, a sound designer out there who had done like 26 shows that year or something absurd. And it's, yeah, that, that, that inability to sort of really focus because to make the, the career work required so much, taking so many different jobs. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's brutal. And that touches on something I just want to talk about, which is, this is something somebody pointed out to me earlier this year. Ethan, you, you need to stop saying minimum wage and you need to start saying livable wage. Do you know what the difference between those two is? And because you've said livable wage here already. Theoretically, it's important because I like the idea that if you are a theater practitioner and, and you're successful at it, you're working at the, the big places, that can be your career. And I think right now that's just frankly not true. In New York, there's certainly some people who have a year on Broadway, they can make a living. But most everyone, even in New York and LA, it's either you've got commercials, film and TV that makes it possible, or you have a a side job. And that doesn't go away if you're working consistently. From a theoretical standpoint, it's the idea that we wanna push the industry to a place where if you are working, the, the actor or designer's equivalent of full time, you know, which is probably given how much work we do outside of the room 45 weeks a year, 
you could not be rich, but you could live on that. That could be a baseline that you could work from. That is the standard we're holding ourselves to and the way we're hoping to push the field. Where that gets really interesting is that the large theaters sometimes say, well, we are paying a living wage, which might be true for the 10 weeks that they're there, you can scrape by, but, but part of my assertion is those theaters need to be paying a real living wage, which means time off, sick days, vacation is a part of what that weekly fee is. And then the other difference, yeah, on the low end, just the fact of theaters that would call themselves professional theaters that aren't even following the law, to, to put it bluntly, around minimum wage, around workplace standards. I think there is a, a reckoning that needs to happen in the mind of small producers, which is to say, are we a community theater? If so, that's fine, but let's be honest about it. Or are we aspiring to be a professional theater? In which case, even when we're small, we need to start defining what our model is going to be that's not built on underpaid and exploited labor. The other, the other thing I'll say about a living wage is practically I'm interested in this idea that there's a, a line where money and happiness increase together and then at a certain point they split, right? Like money keeps going up, happiness stays the same. My goal for our company is that we get to that point where they split so that you've got the, and I think this is a couple years old now, but it was something in the 70K range. Your happiness increases as you get up to that number and then you got to deal with your psychology and everything else that gets in the way because money's there. So that's the other um, scale I, I like to use to think about where we're, we're aiming, that, that that would be a living wage is somewhere around 70. And then, of course, that's different in Detroit versus San Francisco, but, but it's still the baseline idea that a career in the theater supports a decently comfortable life. I love that. And, and I will say that this is a beef that I have with nonprofit Broadway. They get to pay two thirds of what it costs to pay the regular union. So the union has agreed that because they're nonprofit, for my own example, I worked on a show called Choir Boy at a nonprofit Broadway house. The minimum at the time for an assistant was fifteen twenty-five a week. At this theater, the minimum was eleven hundred. You're still on Broadway doing a Broadway show, but because it's a nonprofit, for some reason, it gets to pay less money. And they're still up for the Tony Award. They're still up for all this stuff. They get big name actors. They pay big name actors. So anyway, that, that's just a beef that I have with nonprofit. And so I really like the Williams Project because it is nonprofit. It's, it's not looking at what do we have to do. I mean, obviously, you have to abide by the union rules if you're going to engage with the union, but it's about what is what is right and moral for our people. And this is part of this thing about, you know, you, you if you play that out and say you somehow have a year where you're willing to kill yourself and work 52 weeks a year at eleven hundred dollars. First of all, that's impossible. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible in, in New York City. Yeah. If you were to do it, then in New York City, you'd leave with less than 60 K working every week on Broadway, whether it's nonprofit or not. Like you have just done the definition of a, of a successful working career and you're not, you're not making a living. You can, well, can you in New York? It's been a while, but I would think that'd be a tough, it'd be a tough go. You can, but it's, what kind of life is that where you have to, you know, take a two hour commute somewhere and have 10 roommates and, you know, yeah, sure. It's definitely possible. Anything's possible. You can live in New York on 15,000 a year it's possible. <laughs> well, and, and this is the thing that I'm really trying. I think the public doesn't understand that because I think for the public, they say, yeah, that, that 10 roommate thing in Midwood or whatever neighborhood is way out in Brooklyn, that's the thing you do until you're successful. That's the thing you do when you're working downtown and making your passion projects and building a name for yourself. I think it's a real eye opener when you let people know no, these are the these are the the actors you've seen at Roundabout at you know, and they balance between at Classic Stage and Rattlestick, and then occasionally you'll see them on. It's still those actors that that are doing the work that are established that are mid career people, and they're still having to choose that lifestyle. That I think is a is a misunderstanding. 
that is sort of like romanticized in this idea of the young starving artist who hasn't made it yet, as opposed to, no, the structure keeps artists starving unless they do something other than theater some of the time. All right, so the community is important to every theater. How does it relate to your project? Because you're in different theaters, et cetera. Do you have a fan base, a support base that agrees with you and is supporting you? We do, and we have it in a couple of ways. There are some people that really respond to our mission from sort of a economic justice standpoint. But at the end of the day, like you don't go to the theater to see economic justice. <laughs> um, so the, the other thing that I think defines like our fan base is one of the things that happens when you, when you prioritize paying the artists over other things in the budget is that you get a lot of creativity without a lot of polish. So there is a, a fan base that we've built around. You're going to see some of the best actors. You're going to see the same actors you see at Seattle Rep, but in a cafe with 30 seats, and they're going to be three feet away from you. And again, I don't mean to say, you know, put acting as a hierarchy quite so much, but you'll see great artists, you'll see really creative art. And if you're up for unpolished, something might go wrong in a way, even like there is a level of, it becomes more live because we have less time. That's the other part. When you're a small company, you're prioritized paying a lot. You're lucky to get a three week rehearsal process. So an audience is seeing it and they are in process with the artists. Yeah, we've built a, a, a loyal following of folks who believe in our mission and like this experience of seeing great acting up close. Part of why I brought that up is that you have, for your tickets, you have a pay-what-you-can model, and you've had that since 2017. Is that sustainable for you? Is that working out for you? And for anybody who doesn't know what a pay-what-you-can model is, what is that? There are lots of different ways to do it. And we, we sort of pieced together ours from a couple of examples before us. The one that I knew most was Mixed Blood in Minneapolis had radical hospitality. For us, it works like this. You can buy a ticket ahead of time. And we have a couple of levels where you can pay or you can buy a $0 ticket. Then when you get there, you know, there's literally like, boxes you can drop a donation in or you can swipe a card and put in an amount. And, and we do that for, for all of our tickets. So it's not like we set aside 10 for every show. It's like anyone can purchase any level. There's a couple of things we found since we moved to this model. One is the success of it has been our average ticket price didn't change much. Part of what we try to message around pay what you can is pay what you can is often framed as something for people without a lot of money, but our, our assertion is it's for everybody. So if you can pay, please do. And when you're really explicit about that, a lot of people do. We have people paying you know, 50 bucks a ticket. So actually the bigger challenge hasn't been uh, revenue so much as there's a psychological thing when someone reserves a free ticket that sometimes they just don't show up. And that's the problem we haven't quite cracked open. The money's worked out okay. The problem is if we have a smaller house and we have 20 people that purchase $0 tickets, sometimes only 10 of them will show up. So we're, we're experimenting with different ways of solving that issue because we've actually been quite blown away by the support of the community and saying, this is the model we believe in, help us make it work. And they really have. Our, our average ticket last year was around 20 some dollars. So it's not, you know, it's not nothing. Creating that vibrant audience is the, is the flip side of it. We're working on that. I'm sure you've thought of this, <laughs> but, you know, reserve it for $25. And then if you don't show up, you charge the $25. There is some technical challenges around like holding people's credit card information. Yeah, that's, that's one that we're working on putting into place, especially because we are just starting the process of thinking about our first in the tail end of COVID show where some of the, the state restrictions are you need, a, you need an assigned seat, you have to, you know, all of these things. Yeah, we have thought of that. The other thing that we've done is um, pick locations where the occupancy is much larger than where it would feel full. So a place where if you get 200 people there, it's going to feel packed. But if you get 150, it'll feel full so that you can kind of build in some people not showing up. But each time we try something a little different and we're getting closer and closer. But yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of 
technological solutions around like if people have this app where they can reserve a ticket they have to have a card on file with the app so that if they don't show it charges them and then and then if they do show it will just ask them after the show what they would like to donate because this is the other part of paying you can when you do if you do a great show we, we had this experience. Our first pay what you can show was blues from Mr. Charlie and people would come and they'd put a 20 in. If I may say so, that show was really good. Great, like, you know, great writing, really good company of actors, beautiful music. And we had people who would come at intermission and put 20 more dollars in and then come after the show and put 20 more dollars in because they, they felt the value of it. They could see what they were paying for in the acting. All right, so with nonprofit, now a lot of nonprofit is donation-based, like apart from ticket sales. How much of your revenue is ticket sales versus other people supporting you? You know, when I was at Magic, we, we learned like the healthy mix is 50-50. We're certainly donation-heavy. We're probably somewhere between 70 and 80% donations and grants. Part of that is, you know, we're, we're trying to raise even more money for the same size season because we're paying more. Um, and part of it is, as I said before, we tap into some people who believe in the mission above and beyond the art itself and are willing to sort of uh, really support that. So, yeah, I think we're at ballpark, I'm going to say 75-25. Okay, we, we talked about the actor and designer who are week, paid weekly or per, per show base. Do you have a staff and are they paid yearly or are they paid hourly? That, that I'm talking about like front of house or accounting, etc., and then also like your stagehands and your load-in people, are they paid hourly or how, how is the wage make it to the rest of the company? Yeah, great question. So there is a, there's an administrative staff that is me, the artistic director, and Ellen, the producing director. We are paid annually. This is where it's a little, we're, we're, we also strive to pay ourselves a living wage. And technically we do because we, we budget ourselves as, as, two days a week. But the reality is we work more than that. So we are, we're trying to carry that through to everyone we work with that we don't want, we don't want any labor that is underpaid for the value that they bring. Um, so that's the, the staff that actually works for the theaters, just the two of us. Things like front of house, we, we do hire hourly. Um, you know, Seattle's got a pretty high minimum wage. So we, I think we pay the minimum wage here is like sixteen fifty an hour, and I think we pay eighteen is our sort of base rate for front of house, and um, and then stage manager, ASM, electricians. You know, sometimes when we do shows in, for example, in a church, we might not have a, we might not do sort of theatrical lighting and those kind of things. But when we do, it's it's the same kind of idea that usually they're paid weekly. I mean, certainly when we do union stage management stuff, they're paid union rates for the week. Um, and then anyone else we bring in is either a, a buy show or a, a, an hourly rate. The just random question, besides the two of you on staff getting paid two days a week, what is the most amount of weeks that you have provided to an actor for a year? The most weeks we've provided would probably be... If we had a season where an actor was in both of our shows, we've never gotten beyond two shows in a season, that would have probably been uh, 10 weeks. So it's not, a, it's not full time by any means for the artist, it's, but it's um, usually something like two and a half weeks of rehearsal and two and a half weeks of performance is a show. And so doing both would be 10 weeks. Okay, so 10 weeks. So because you were saying if, if somebody worked for 45 weeks, they should get enough money to live for a year. Yeah. And, and I'll be... I want to be transparent. We're not there yet. We, we think we're, we're punching above our weight class, but my model for how this would work is that by the time we get to be midsize, we think we can be the highest paying nonprofit in the country. That's our goal at, to show that at a million five, you know, which is not huge for a theater company at a million five, we can, we can make it work with actors making a true livable wage so that hopefully the, the trickle effect of that is, you know, the places with a budget of 10 to 30 million are saying we, we should step this up. And then the places that are really small are saying we can pay minimum wage. And, and then an actor bouncing between those levels is really making it work. Mic drop. So you're saying at the 1.5 million budget for your entire organization, not per show, but for the entire organization, you will be the highest paying nonprofit theater in the country. That is our assertion. 
Ellen and I have built a, a model budget for what that would look like. I forget exactly what it was, a four or five show season with a, with a staff, with all of these things um, that, that becomes the highest paying nonprofit in the country. I love it. Do, 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 do. Okay. My blues for Mr. Charlie question. Yeah. That cast is really big. That's a big show. You were able to pay them all on that humongous cast show? We, we doubled. Uh, you know, our, our cast was 10 plus a group of, you know, we did use a choral contract that paid for less weeks. I mean, there, you know, I will say even there, yes, we paid, we paid the 10 ensemble actors the union contract level. I forget which size we were then, but it was 700 or so. And then we had a, we had a music director who built a choir that then did some acting, but was a chorus. And they also got paid and got paid decently well, but for less time. It was sort of like they came to two rehearsals and then performed it because they weren't um, carrying acting heavy lifting. So yeah, it, it takes a lot of creativity. It takes some level of, you know, one of the challenges was we had to double roles and it, it can get confusing to an audience if you're not really careful, but we did. Yeah, we found a way. It was, it was huge. That that's wonderful. And, and also because I, I've asked a question on this podcast, which is if, if money wasn't an issue, what would you do or something like this? A number of times people have said, I want to start a collective where we pay our actors a livable wage for the season and and they're involved and maybe they don't do, say we do eight shows a year or five shows a year, maybe they only do four, like, you know, but they're getting paid like a salary so that they can actually sort of enjoy their life instead of just working to death. <laughs> and I think that sounds wonderful in, in theory, but then when you sit down, there's definitely a model to be had. But what I like about your model is it's it's breaking it down by show, which is how the industry operates and those like an actual collective is a that's a much different proposition so that's what i really like about your model is it's scalable i think there's a way in which when people get into artistic leadership they have that same mindset that like i'll get to a size when i where i can start doing it better but there is no theater that is like okay we've got enough money now let's just give people more of it, it it's always a matter of priorities and i do think there's a way in which how you begin the company, how you begin the, the, the practice of thinking about money, that's going to scale. So that even if you, if the beginning is, well, we've got to do it, we've got to not value the artist's time right now because someday we will. The relationships aren't as strong, the, the someday keeps getting pushed back. Uh, you start to professionalize and all these new costs come in and it keeps being a thing that, that we're almost there, we're almost there, we're almost there. And then by the time you are, it's that thing of we've grown really big now, so we're paying the low end of a living wage as opposed to, you know, we start with the low end of a living wage so that as we get bigger and bigger, this is part of what grows with it. I love that. And also with this podcast. So this podcast is now just a year old. Uh -huh. I have had that mindset of, because right now it's not financially sustainable. As simple as it all is, it's not financially sustainable. And I keep saying, oh, when I get this many listeners, I'll start running ads. Or uh, when I get to this, I'll start hiring out the editing, et cetera, et cetera. And here I am a year later. No, that's not. You ha I have to build it sustainable now and scale up. Those days are never going to come. So I, I actually could take your sort of thinking and apply it here. <laughs> yeah, and I don't want to romanticize it, right? Things come up where you go, oh, this would be so much easier. <laughs> like, well, let's just add a week and lower the rate. You know, let's just do it the, the, the way other people are doing it. And I want to be very generous and say, I understand where this model comes from. It makes a lot of sense. But I also, I agree with you that, that it's, it's a way of thinking more than the numbers it set themselves. You can't unsustainable your way to sustainable is, is a belief of mine, right? If you, if you build it to sort of burn yourself out until you get there, the burnout will happen before you get there. Because also there's a conversation now that out of the pandemic, people are saying, we don't want to do 10 out of 12s. We don't want to, you know, why are we loading in in a week and everyone's working 16 hours a day when we could just do it two weeks? And there is a certain element of, well, there's a reason people are doing it in the week. Like it that that week might not be able like extending it to 2 weeks is not always the solution. So it's how do we make it happen, you know, so it's fair and equitable. 
And it's it's not easy. <laughs> I think part of this, because this is a conversation that I'm really invested in right now, part of what's happening in that conversation from my perspective is people are sort of baking in that the pay is going to be bad. So it's almost like, well, if the pay is going to be bad, I'm not also going to work myself too hard. Like I want more time. But I think if we if you were to if you were able to say, imagine that if you did that 10 week show, you could you could afford a week off genuinely like you would have a vacation afterwards, then we can have the conversation. Would you rather spread that money out and have a slower process or would you rather do the intensive when everyone's around because you're being fairly compensated, you know, the idea there was a there was a movement in Seattle recently to expand overtime rules and a lot of artistic organizations came out against it saying if we have to pay overtime we're not going to be able to survive and again this was a perfect example to me of like if you can't afford overtime you can't ask people to work overtime you have to you have to be honest with yourself either say yeah great let's do it let's give people time and a half cuz these days when everyone's in the room are really vital or say, no, we're going to stick to the 40-hour week and extend it. But you can't ask for both sides. You know, we want people to work as if this is the crucial, urgent moment, but we want to pay them as if it's a normal work week. Replicating this model is something that I'm really interested in because I, I found out about you because a friend knows me <laughs> and said, hey, you need to check out this project because it's really, there's something there. <laughs> if somebody wanted to replicate this. Like, I'm going to try to replicate this with my podcast. Don't ask me how that translates, but I'm going to do that for myself. If, if somebody's out there listening and they want to start a community theater or a professional theater, you know, what, what can they learn from you? Or could they just go to your website, sort of see what you're doing and sort of glean from that? Like, okay, this is sort of what he's doing. Or should they reach out to you and say, hey, uh, provide me some guidance? I mean, I'm happy if anyone's interested in, in trying to replicate this mod model, I'm happy to talk to folks. And I also want to say I'm not the only, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that are starting to, to push this conversation forward in different ways. My overall advice, though, is um, there is this sort of disease among artists that is like thinking about the money makes it less pure or less I don't know exactly how I would fill that in, but but it's almost like the money will take care of itself later if we start by making the, the great art. And my key idea, the values with which you think about money and valuing your art translates directly to the art. Whatever model you want to start with, I'm not sure mine is right, but I am sure mine is intentional about money. If you want to try it, Give yourself a timeline. If you want to say, look, we're a collective of friends straight out of undergrad. We're not going to pay each other. But in four years, we're going to like, that's when we, uh, because we are working collectively, we're going to build it together. I don't necessarily have a problem with that model, sort of the sweat equity model, as long as you're intentional so that it doesn't become 15, 20 years later and you've, you've baked into the structure that artistic payment is never a part of what we do. Be explicit and hold yourself to whatever accountability you define so that at least you have a way to, to know if you're succeeding. Yeah, I like that. And also, I'm going to point out your scalability thing. You started with a show. Were you a nonprofit before you did that very first show? Or did you just do that first show? And then at some point, you said, oh, we should probably form a nonprofit so people can donate or something like that. We definitely weren't our own nonprofit. I think what happened was the first year it was, I think it was not, I know this, it was not. It was a Kickstarter project. It went into my bank account. I paid people, you know, it was like, uh, that show got picked up by a nonprofit for the following season. So they sponsored us as a nonprofit. And then by the third year we had, I think, become our own or maybe the fourth year, there was maybe another partnership. So. The scalability thing is right. We started, we said, we've got two weeks. And it was, you know, it wasn't a living wage then. It was like $4.50 a week with room and board for the, for the retreat. That was much more like a genuine, very short retreat. But it was able to build from there with that idea. So, yeah, I, that, that's the other thing I say is, why would you start with a five-show season where you're doing all of these things when you, when you can't raise any money as opposed to 
there's a project we really want to do. We're going to raise money that we can for that and then build. If that worked, and this has been our experience, the experiment worked so we could grow it a little more. It worked again so we could grow it a little more. Oh, this time it didn't work as well. We did some things wrong. So we're going to stay the same size, but, but continue this value. And each time we kind of replicate the experiment so that it, it, can, it can grow based on what's working. That feels like the right model. I, in the show notes, I'm going to put a list of some other theaters that are doing it. And if people want to see, they can go there and see different models of how people are doing it. You know, if, if you think this is a good idea and you're an artistic director or you want to be or you want to just put on a show, start small and try it. If you fail, you fail small. If you succeed, you can expand. Anyone who's interested in this model has to be willing to interrogate the difference between um, whether you have access to fundraising. Because there are absolutely, there are people and communities where it's almost like, I couldn't do this if I wanted. I, I, don't, I don't have an entree into that world. And that is, a, that is very much like a systemic problem that needs to get solved because it's, it's um, particularly hard on BIPOC communities, communities that have a harder time accessing capital. But there's a, there's a different group that, that uses that as an excuse when it's really, it makes me uncomfortable to have to do it. That's really the audience that I wanna make sure is being more intentional. When folks genuinely have barriers to fundraising, that's a real problem. There's some good work starting to happen about fixing that problem. But I think that's also an excuse that lots of people make, which is I, I can't fundraise. I don't know enough rich people. I'm not, I'm not from money that same way. There is, there is some interrogation that needs to go into, well, what can you do? Is that true or is it just that it's really hard to ask people for money? I'm, I'm an Irish Catholic in some ways. And like when I started having to be like, can you give me money for my theater? I felt like, you know, a little boy, you know, it was a very, it, it's taken a ton of work for me to be able to do that. It's a real psychological block for me, but that's different than not having access. Speaking of asking for money, head to patreon.com slash artistic finance, become a patron and get early releases of this show and extended interviews. <laughs> <laughs> we had producer Irene Gandy on, Broadway producer. She said, don't worry about the money. Obviously you need it, but if I want to do a project, these are her words, if I want to do a project that I need $500 for, but I don't have $500, I get 50. Okay, I start with 50. That's echoing your point of just start, start with what you have. Your budget right now is $300,000 a year. That's for everything. That's for two shows a year. Community theater shows that are not in big metropolises probably have budgets between ten to 20000 And yes, that's, that's a big chunk of change, but enough people coming together to do that is very possible. And if you start and you have the vision and the mission and the plan, people will join your team that can help you with that. Yeah. And it's the difference between I've got $10,000, so I'm going to do a full run with costumes and lights and sound. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to do the very small version of the big thing, as opposed to saying I've got $10,000. I can't afford costumes for this one. We're going to rely on good acting and the language. That's the project we're going to build from. So that $10,000 is not split between you know, four designers and all the actors and the budget to do all of these things. It's like, okay, so we've got this small amount of money and we're not gonna do everything. We're gonna, we're gonna put it towards our priority. And then what has quite literally happened is people saw that and said, I want more of that. That's the kind of thing I wanna support. And that's how it could grow. And I think that wouldn't have happened if they just gone to see the low budget full production. I think seeing the workshop with the great actors, they go, how do, we, how do we build this? This is different. Running this project, what has been your number one challenge that was hard for you and you got over or that you, maybe you're still continuing to wrestle with? And it, it doesn't have to be financial. It, you know, just If you were to do it again, what could help you <laughs> if you could go back in time and say, we'll do this differently? One of the, the big challenges for me has been this question of horizontal leadership, right? As, as the leader of a small company, I had in my head 
and and Ellen I think has dealt with the same challenge. Like we're 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 just treading water. We're not powerful in any sort of artistic leadership way. We're just doing this thing we want to do in the way that I think theaters fall into like, we'll think about money later. I think I fell into the trap of, I'll think about sustainable communication with artists, sustainable power sharing, sustainable community later when I've got more bandwidth for that. That's the bad habit we got into is some of the artists felt like, well, Ryan's making all the decisions. He he's, He's sort of the, the center of power. And my experience of that was I'm so far behind, I'm just doing whatever I can to keep up. And that miscommunication, um, we're currently trying to unbake from the cake and, and say, even from a small scale, we have to be really transparent about decision-making, about power, about relationships, because that, that's another one that can at what size do you start building in healthy communication? It's another one that it'll never happen if you don't think about it intentionally. So that's been my biggest challenge. Ooh, communication. That's, <laughs> that's a tough one. <laughs> what has been one of the highlights or one of the big achievements that you've accomplished with this? You know, I, I think there have been moments in rehearsal and performance that have felt like that sort of utopian theater idea. We're all in this together. The vision is out there somewhere. No one has full grasp on it, but we're all reaching towards it. At its best, there's this sort of beautiful simplicity about the, the process and work that, that we've built that has really sustained me, you know, that the, that's made the work that goes into making that possible really worth it. Doesn't always happen, but there have been these glimpses of this is what it, this is what it should feel like to make theater where people really feel valued, we're all working together. Um, and, then the, and then the audience becomes an extension of that. It's almost like they're working on it with you. Like, what is the thing we're all here to do together? Amazing. All right, so I'm gonna head to the wrap up. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about about William's project? The pandemic has put all of these theories into a, a new kind of practice. It's been really draining in some ways because doing all of the administration for a year with none of the artistic, you know, no, no outlet for it has been hard. But I, I am actually very hopeful that people are more open to thinking systemically in a big way than we were when we were doing, you know, just kind of all going full steam making theater. So that, that's the last thing I'll say. It's a hopeful moment for systemic change. What can you and I do to stress the importance of finance and savings to our fellow artists. Individual artists can have the same responsibility that I, I think producers have, which is define for yourself how you plan to make it work when you're, when you're starting out. Have a, have a clear picture of, of what would it mean to you to be financially successful. Do, do you want a long-term life of doing some acting mixed with teaching? Do you, like What is your vision so that it, it doesn't get kind of blown by the winds of what is available to you? Uh, I think producers can take more responsibility for, for making it possible, but I think individual artists should also think about what do I want to get out of this artistic career from a financial standpoint? I love that. And I want to add on to it because it felt like this was part of it, which is write it down. Mm -hmm. That is a huge thing because write it down because one, you have it as a measuring stick. It clear, it forces you to make it clear. And if you're writing it down, it's then clear to other people. So it means you can communicate it to other people rather than having this dream inside your head of, I want to be the next Tom Hanks. Right. Write that down. I want to be the next Tom Hanks, but his name won't be Tom Hanks. It will be my name. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that you're right. Like it helps you communicate to other people. It helps you dispel your illusions. When you get that show where you're like, now I've made it and you have to go, oh, but I'm still... I'm still struggling to make ends meet. So, so what has to change? Because this is how I defined having made it. But now that I'm here and I said this is what I wanted, I have to be honest and not just keep doing this because it hasn't given me what, yeah. So, so it's, you're able to communicate to others. You're able to, to check in with yourself how your process is going. This ties into this. What separates those that have a full-time career as artists versus those that try it for a while and then transition to something else or who never even 
try to be an artist? My opinion is that the, the hardest group to succeed are the group that have enough money to start out without thinking about money, but not enough money to just never have to make money. My experience out of undergrad was the people who didn't have a safety net started thinking immediately, like, how do I make money at this? And then the people who are rich are just like, well, I, I get to do what I want. That, that's a blessing. So I think the people who are able to survive in it define a sustainable way to have a career and then follow that path. And, and yeah, that, that can mean, so I got to be in LA because the way to make it sustainable is I like theater, but I really like film or I, I love acting, but I want to be able to just do the shows I care about, which means I am going to teach. Like that's my, that's my way. I'm going to focus on teaching and take two or three passion projects. Um, so you're able to find a definition that is built around the reality of the situation, as opposed to like, I'm going to, I'm going to keep working and someday I'll make it. And then you, you, you know, 10 years in you've made it, but still not made a living. And that's when, that's when I saw a lot of people quit is, I got to the level I thought I was going to get to. And this is when I started to see I can't last like this. Where can people find out more about you and The Williams Project? www.thewilliamsproject.org is our website. It's got, it's got all the information that we have on our mission, our values, and what we're up to artistically. And if you're in Seattle or near... Absolutely. If you're if you're in Seattle, we're 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 coming out of the hibernation with the some small socially distanced outdoor shows at the end of May, perhaps an outdoor production in in July or August. This is all going to depend on on public health and safety, but we're ready to to pick up where we left off on building community through these uh, shared experiences. Well, Ryan, thank you for joining us today and, and talking through all this. And, and I want to say congratulations. And congratulations is one of those words that I think is empty. It sort of has a, a connotation that it just happened to you. And you, this didn't just happen to you. You, you did it. You, you went and you did it. So congratulations in the sense of it's a lot of hard work and you've done it for so long. And, and hopefully it looks like you're going to be doing it for a while. Congratulations on that. And thank you again. Thank you, Ethan. It was great to talk to you. That was our interview with Ryan Guzzo Purcell. My takeaways were, it is possible for small nonprofit theaters to pay a livable wage. There's a small version or a big version of whatever you want to create. Don't blame the finances for not taking action. Take action with the finances you do have. Communication. Whatever scale you're working at, be sure to communicate clearly. Make your intent known so others can help you or resist and let you know your intent needs to change. The outtakes from this episode are on Patreon. Visit patreon.com artisticfinance to see the perks and levels that you can support at. If becoming a patron isn't for you, there is another fee you can pay for listening to the podcast. That fee is to tell one friend about us. If there's a particular episode you liked, share the link with someone and tell them why you liked it. And if social media is your thing, please tag us on Instagram, TikTok, or Facebook at Artistic Finance. You can find me on Twitter at Ethan Stimel. Thank you in advance for sharing and tagging. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Make sure to subscribe. To access our show notes, transcripts, or resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.